And they've traveled now to the city of Gerar. And this familiar fear creeps in. What if they harm me or kill me to get to my wife? He doesn't trust the people there. And all of a sudden, this great and faithful Abraham, he's right back in the same spot. And he falls on his face again. Right back into the same sin he committed in Egypt. Instead of trusting the Lord and walking in obedience, he, he fears man, he doubts, he questions, and he lies. This is doubt leads to disobedience, to sin. And so Genesis 20 br- brings us back again to this tension that we've been seeing throughout this uh, account of Abraham, of Abraham's sin and God's promise. Abraham's sin and God's promise. So look with me, Genesis 20. Um, we'll read through this whole chapter together as we get started. Genesis 20, starting at verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to his Sisera, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Abimelech had not approached her. And so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself say, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. But when, uh, but then, uh, now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me the things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And behold, everyone, uh, before everyone, you are vindicated. When Abraham prayed to God, God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves 
so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true, that it is trustworthy. Thank you that it gives us everything we need for life and godliness. Lord, help us. Um, We see ourselves pretty easily in this text, coming up to a familiar temptation, falling again, stumbling in the same place we have before, needing your grace, needing your comfort and your assurance again. God, would you give us eyes to see your truth, that we might walk in it. Lord, I pray that you would um, speak through me this morning. God, if there's anything that I've planned to say that is not of you, that those words would, would fall to the ground, would be left off, would be forgotten. But God, that your word would go forth and they would accomplish what you uh, have prepared for it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to this text, uh, the first thing we see uh, is the lingering problem. It's the lingering problem. Abraham's repeated sin, this problem in his heart that continues, that plagues him. Uh, We see it first in in verses 1 and 2, kind of sets it up, but then it it unveils it more. We see a little more of his heart issue uh, in verses 10 to 13. So we're going to go there as well. We're not going to work through the text systematically. We're going to jump a little bit. Um, But first, let's look at uh, verse 1. This gives us the setting. This just tells us what's going on, where are we at. Uh, From there, Abraham journeyed uh, toward the territory of the Negev, lived between Kadesh and Shur, and sojourned in Gerar. Now, I know we did this not long ago, but we have the kids with us. I find this helpful. These feel like made-up names, don't they? Like, I've never been to the Negev. I don't know where Gerar is, and it's easy for me to read this story and, and, and not get the reality of it. So let's put it on the map. I think that helps, gives us a sense of what's going on. This is our world. North America, Canada, over on that left side, in the middle, up top, you have Europe and Africa, and right between the two to the east is this little tiny red dot. That's Israel. Um, now, if we, if we zoom in from there, um, you're going to see um, the red tree there. That's where Abram has been hanging out. That's the Oaks of Mamre, uh, somewhere in that region. That's where this uh, account of, of Sodom and Gomorrah took place. From there, he traveled down into the Negev. That's that red region or thereabouts. Uh, it's a kind of a general territory. And it says he dwelt between Kadesh, um, which you can see there is a little town on the map, um, and the wilderness of Shur, which is that green area. Um, that's about 100 kilometers, about here to Calgary. He and his family walked that, would have been over a period of some time. And, uh, and they set up there for a season. And then they head back north and, and a little bit to the west to Gerar, the top of that orange arrow. So that's where they're set up. That's a real place in Israel. You can go there. People live there. Uh, and, and it's they come to Gerar that Abraham once again got nervous. He didn't know the people there. He didn't trust them. And once again, he's worried. What are they going to do to me in order to get to my wife? It's a little bit odd because Sarah's an old lady now. She's like 90. Now, maybe, maybe Abraham's just paranoid. 
Maybe he's a little optimistic about his wife's beauty. Um, others have suggested, and it's possible, that, that the Lord has extended her, her beauty along with her vitality. She is about to become pregnant, or maybe he's restored her vitality, and she has uh, a beauty and a youth beyond what a 90-year-old would have. Um, whatever the case, the reason behind it, um, Abraham instructs her again to lie, just like they did in Egypt. Tell him I'm your brother. This plan would have protected him. Any of the normal people um, who wanted to then marry his wife um, would endear themselves to him, would bring him gifts, and he would have the ability to say no. Um, But just like what happened in Egypt, um, when the king takes notice, you have a problem because you have no power there. And so the king of Gerar, Abimelech, just like Pharaoh, took Sarah to be his wife. Now, in Egypt, it says specifically about um, the, the Pharaoh seeing the beauty of Sarah. That's not mentioned here. Um, it's possible Abraham actually created this problem. Um, it's possible that he's wanting to take Sarah to create an alliance with Abraham. Abraham is powerful. This is a, a growing, powerful people. Um, but at any rate, Abimelech takes Sarah into his uh, harem. Um, but think about where we are in the story of Abraham and Sarah. God had promised 25 years before this that he would bless Abraham and that he would bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham. Abraham was to be the father of the, the, the promised rescuer. It was going to come through his line. And so they've been waiting for this promise, but Sarah was barren. She's unable to have children. And so they waited and waited for God to miraculously fulfill this promise. Genesis 18, Abraham and Sarah are now old. Not only is she barren, she's way past childbearing age. This seems dead and gone, can't happen, not possible. And the Lord appeared to them again. He had dinner with them. And at that point, the Lord said, this is the time. It's going to happen. It's coming now. I'm going to come back in one year. And Sarah will have a son. So we're in this period right after that. Um, we take off nine months. We're somewhere probably in that window in between. This promised child is finally coming. The blessing. God's going to make you a great nation. Well, that has to start with one child. And he's coming. So we're story of Sodom and Gomorrah happens right following that. We're in this space of maybe a couple of months after that meeting. And Abraham puts the whole thing at risk. He jeopardizes the whole plan. His wife is supposed to be becoming pregnant with his child. It's now finally going to happen. And now she's with another man. Abraham, what are you thinking? What a bad move. Shake your head, man. Good general rule to remember. Sin makes you do dumb things. There's a a good theological point. Sin makes you dumb. It's astounding. We think it makes sense. We think we're doing something clever. We think we're doing God a favor. His way's not really working. Maybe I'll do it this way. It's a dumb idea. And in this case, Abraham actually tells us what he was thinking. We jump down to verse 10. Abimelech asks him, what did you see? What brought you to this conclusion? And Abraham is quick to give three excuses 
These are so familiar, sadly. First, he blames others, verse 11. He says, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in these places. These people are wicked sinners, ironically. He says that he lied because he didn't think they feared God. And yet by his lie, he showed that he feared them more than he feared God. This is fear of man. And he tries to spin it off as if it's their fault. Kids, you've never done this, right? I never would have hit him, but he was messing with my game. Right? It was his sin. All of, all of my sin is all his fault. This is rough. It's hard. The reality is obeying God means trusting him even when others sin against you. Even when others sin, we're still responsible before the Lord for our actions. We still have to trust him and obey him in the face of that sin. So first, Abraham blames others. Secondly, he tries to soften it with this half-truth. He kind of justifies it a little bit. My wife would tell you that her first boyfriend did this a lot. That's, that's me. Um, I had a gift for this. I can take something sinful and just twist it a little bit. Just make sense of it. Let me, let me reframe that. Let me put some different words to it, right? We, we get creative. Abraham says, well, she is my sister, technically. She's the, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. So she's his half-sister. It wasn't uncommon in that day. That, that happened, but, but that's not the point. He, he's very intentionally leaving out the most relevant information, the piece of the puzzle that matters. It's a lie. There's no fooling anyone. There's no getting around it. And so he makes this, he makes this half-truth, and he, he believes his own lie, and then he tries to sell it to others. So he blames others. He justifies it with his half-truth. And then thirdly, um, he makes the excuse that, well, this is just the way we've always done it. This is the decision we made way back when we, when we first... Um, left our, our home and our people to follow the Lord. Um, I told Sarah, this is the kindness you must do to me in every place that we come. Say of me, he is my brother. It's okay. No, 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 no. It's okay. We've been doing this for years. This is the way we've always done it. Don't look too closely. Don't stop and think about it. This is just the way we've done it. Or maybe that's just the kind of person I am. That's just the way I respond. Sometimes I do that. That's just who I am. Don't question it. The way you've always done it may still be sin. It may still be sin. That doesn't justify it. That doesn't make it any better that we've done it a hundred times. It's harder to admit that maybe I have been walking in sin every time. And to confess that now is to sell out past me. I don't know if Abraham began to feel foolish as he dropped these excuses. But from our perspective, it looks pretty clear. This is folly doesn't work. It's not holding up. He didn't trust the Lord, and so he didn't obey the Lord. And his excuses just aren't helping. As we see this story begin to unfold, what do, we, what do we take from all of this? Well, first of all, it's clear that Abraham still has a sin problem, right? 
Yes, the Lord has chosen him and called him. Yes, Abraham trusted God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he's done some great acts of faith. But he's still a sinner. Even as God's children, called and rescued, having expressed faith, we still have sin in our hearts. Still, sin still lives in our hearts. It's there. We all have this same lingering problem. Luther famously coined this Latin phrase. Kids, you up for a little bit of Latin this morning? That's what you knew you were getting, right? You can, you can take that back to school and impress your friends. Um, they won't be impressed. They'll just look at you weird. Luther said that, that we are simul usus et peccator. Simul means same or simultaneously. Eustus means just, righteous, holy. Peccator means sinner. We're at the same time justified and sinner. We, we have this, these two realities happening in us. And so as far as God's judgment is concerned, if you've trusted in the Lord, You've been justified by faith. God's, God's judgment says Abraham has been counted righteous. The gavel has dropped. He's been declared not guilty. And yet the reality of Abraham's life doesn't match that. His ongoing experience has this lingering sin problem. He's still a sinner. He's still tempted to sin. He's still prone to sin. He still falls into sin. Now, the Lord is sanctifying him. The Lord is purifying him, teaching him, growing him. But he is so far from perfect. He is still messed up with sin. And this is us. Listen, this is the, this is the necessary reality of being saved by grace, right? If, if you put your trust in Christ, you're forgiven you're justified, you're counted righteous before God, and it is a gift of grace precisely because it doesn't match reality. If it matched reality, then we would say we earned it. Then it would be by works. I'm justified because I'm a good person. God says, good luck with that. The bar isn't here. The bar is 100 miles higher than you could ever jump. It's the holiness of God. Nobody matches that. But by grace, through the cross of Christ, we are declared righteous. We're set free from the, the power of sin before Christ in our, in our flesh. Born in Adam, we were slaves to sin. We could do nothing but sin. In Christ, we're born anew. We have freedom to walk in holiness with the Holy Spirit in us, sanctifying us. And, and yet, Though that old master no longer owns us and can rightly make demands of us, he still shouts his commands and every now and then we still jump when he says jump. We still have these patterns of sin that linger. We still have this weakness and brokenness in us and we will until the day that the Lord takes us home. Hopefully less and less so as the years go on, but, but that reality is there. So the, the Christian life is a life of living into what we've already been given. Holiness is ours. It's a gift from God. He says, you are justified. I have declared you 100% righteous. And the Christian life is slowly growing little by little more towards that. So 
Colossians 3.1, we see this. Paul says, if then, and his if then is kind of a since then. He's saying this is true of you. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. If this is true of you, then live like it. And he goes on to say, Colossians 3, 5 to 9, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So those who have been raised with Christ still have this earthly thing in them that they need to put to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. Speaking to believers, these sins are still grabbing onto your heart. Put them to death. He says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked. This is once your way of life that you lived in when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices. So that old self is gone. You've been raised with Christ. So now live like it. Put these things to death. And that's the the strongest possible language. Kill it. Cut it off. Hack off its head. First thing we see as we look at Abraham, this reminder that sin still lives in our hearts and that call to put it to death, to fight against it. The second thing we see from Abraham is that sin thrives in our excuses. It thrives in our excuses. How did Abraham end up in this horrible position? Well, he excused his sin. He wasn't just giving these excuses to Abimelech. He had already for some time been feeding these excuses to his own heart. He was focused on the fear of man, forgetting who God was, forgetting what God had called him to. He was telling himself this half-truth about Sarah being his sister and, and justifying it and kind of sterilizing it. He's comforting himself with the knowledge, wow, this is just the way we've always done it. This decision was made long ago. We just go with it now. I assume you're like me. Of the thousands of sermons that I've listened to in my life, uh, I I don't remember the details of many of them. Uh, I have a hard time remembering my sermon that I preached a week before. But I do remember where I was sitting in the Bonneville Fellowship Alliance Church listening to, uh, I think it was a visiting preacher, uh, preaching Philippians 4.8. And he made this statement, no one ever sinned without thinking about it first. Seems simple enough, but that rocked me. That hurt. Because the excuse I had been telling myself is that my sin just kind of happened. It just kind of took over. It just kind of worked its way out. I'm helpless against this. This isn't really my fault. But I had to admit, not once had I ever sinned without first thinking about it. Maybe just a a split second, but it went through my mind before it became action. And like Abraham, we continue to fall into these same patterns of sin, stumbling again and again and again at the same place. Listen, you've never once sinned without first thinking about it. And the way you got from thinking about it to acting on it is that we make excuses for it. We justify it. We sanitize it. We make it make sense in our own hearts. 
If we hadn't have justified it, then we wouldn't have done it. Right? Not once did you think to yourself, this is sin, this is all bad, I have no desire to do that, and then go ahead and do it. There was a moment, maybe you started there, and there was a moment of the, the, the switch flipped, and you justified it and longed for it and went after it. At some point, we believe our own lies. We accept our own excuses. We, we convince ourselves that, that this really is the best way forward, at least for right now. Stop and think about your temptation. Stop and analyze. What was my thought process? Even if, even if you have to do that afterhand, do a, a kind of post-mortem. How did I get here? When did my thinking start to go awry? What excuses did I make along the way that I ended up here? And don't let yourself off the hook for that. Call it out. Call out the lies. Better is in the moment. I'm feeling tempted. Why on earth am I tempted by this? What lies am I telling myself right now that are leading me in this direction? Call it out. Don't make excuses. When we call our lies out into the open, it diffuses their power. And there is no excuse that justifies sin. There's, there are none. No, no sin of anyone else. No half-truth. 1 Corinthians 10.13 no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. There's a good reminder. You're not special. You're not under some great pressure that no one else has felt before. And listen to this. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Every sin you've ever sinned was avoidable. God had an open door right there. Come on out, John. Go this way instead. Here's your opportunity. And we say, no. There's no excuse. Every sin is avoidable. And we're called to put sin to death. By God's grace, he offers us a way out every time. Stop making excuses that empower your sin. Identify, reject those, those lies and excuses. Put sin to death. We do not take our sin near serious enough. As John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Those are the only two options. You're either drifting down river or you're working hard to get up river. So this is our lingering problem that we see in Abraham, that we see in us. We need to address that in our own lives. And yet by the, by the grace of God, as we walk through this, we not only see this, this lingering problem, but we also see the Lord's protection. The Lord's protection. This is, this is pure grace upon grace, isn't it? Look at verses 3 to 9. Let me read them for us. Put them fresh in front of us. God said to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart, the innocence of my hands, I have done this. God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. 
so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them all these things and the men who were very much afraid. And then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us and how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom this great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. So following Abraham's lie, Abimelech took Sarah to be one of his wives. Um, Apparently nothing had happened yet. She's just kind of joined the group. And the Lord appears to Abimelech in a dream that night. The Lord's warning is clear. He tells Abimelech, you're a dead man. On my list of things I never want to hear from the Lord, you're a dead man is right up near the top. That's terrifying. You're a dead man because this woman that you have taken is another man's wife. Now, obviously, this is not the Lord's final judgment. This is a warning. Abimelech didn't die in that moment. The Lord is saying, in your current state, on the the path that you're currently on, this will lead to death. That's where this is going. Ironically, Abimelech shows more fear of the Lord than Abraham in this passage. And where Abraham made these lame excuses, Abimelech is able to just honestly say, I didn't know. I was in innocence that I did this. And and there's even a note of humility there. He says, the Lord, didn't didn't Abraham say, this is my sister? Didn't Sarah say, this is my brother? I I was acting in in integrity and innocence. And and then down to verse 6, the Lord affirms it. I know. I know that you've done this integrity of your heart. And, And so God said, that's why I kept you. From, from touching her. Bimelech responds immediately. He jumps out of bed early morning. He's not wasting any time. And he goes to Abraham. It's amazing through these verses is, is just the Lord's protection of Abraham and Sarah. Now, Abraham's decision to sin had consequences. It hurt. It did damage. It brought pain and difficulty And yet not one step of his sin was outside of the Lord's protection. Not one step is outside of the Lord's protection. God's still over it. And not just over Abraham, but he's over Abimelech. The Lord says, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Abimelech didn't realize that. Abimelech thought he was going about his day making his decisions and and the Lord says, oh no, I was over that. I was superintending that. Wrap your mind around that. Even the sinful decisions of unbelieving rulers are under the sovereignty of the Lord. Restrained, guided by God's hand. And of course it has to be so. If, If God is not sovereign over sinful decisions, then he's not sovereign over anything. This whole place goes up in flames. Now, God is sovereign over even the sinful decisions of a wicked ruler. Absolutely in control. The Lord is superseding over this, lovingly protecting Abraham and Sarah, even in their sin, even from their own sin. Even the... um, the the effect that God's warning on Abimelech has, that Abimelech comes uh, and says to Abraham, what have you done? 
This is a wicked thing. You've, you've done what ought not to be done. That's God's kindness to Abraham. When we get caught in our sin, when someone else lovingly comes and tears the mask off and says, hey, you've been, you've been putting lipstick on this, but it's a pig. This is ugly. That's God's grace. That's God's loving discipline calling us back from sin. We have to welcome that. You ever sin and wonder if God's just done with you? You've just gone too far this time? I've come to this same temptation again, and this time I think I've, I've messed it up so bad. There's no salvaging this. You look at your life, the decisions you made, you look back and you think, this is a mess. What could possibly good come out of this that's good? And the reality is, though we will continue until the day we die to battle with this sin in us, even in your sin, you cannot outrun the Lord's protection. You cannot outrun the Lord's protection. If you're his child, if you've truly put your faith in Christ and been made new, then even your sinful decisions, the Lord is working over that and through that. Your sin doesn't nullify Romans 8.28. God has promised. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If you love him, if you've been called by him, even your bad decisions and sin, the Lord is able to work through for your good, for your eternal good and for his glory. It's the wonder of the, the Lord's protection. Again, just unbelievable grace upon grace that he would do that. And then finally, we see not only is our lingering problem, this mess of sin, not only is that met by the Lord's protection, it's also met by his lasting promise. His lasting promise. Look at verses 14 to 18. When Abimelech, sorry, then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver as a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The Lord told Abimelech, Go to Abraham, and so he did. And, and he came with these lavish gifts. He didn't just return Sarah. He came with sheep and oxen and servants. He offered Abraham, you can live anywhere in my land. You'll be protected here. These gifts were to make restitution to Abraham. Um, this is a, a physical symbol of his apology, his repentance. And Abraham's accepting the gift is a statement of forgiveness. This physical transaction um, represents repentance and, and forgiveness and restoration. The second gift given by Abimelech is a thousand pieces of silver. He gives it to Sarah, but he gives it to her through Abraham. 
Um, commentator Bruce Walke notes that, that a Babylonian laborer usually paid a half shekel per month. So he'd have to work 167 years to make a thousand shekels, a thousand pieces of silver. Um, you know me in numbers. This is all rough estimates. Um, somewhere in the realm, if you look at Alberta labor wages, this is like $800,000. It'll, it'll probably be a million by next week the way things are going, but that's a big chunk of change. And, and the purpose of this gift is to prove Sarah's innocence. Um, again, the, the gift given and received, both parties are acknowledging um, that, that Sarah was not violated. She was not touched. And that's a big deal. Because again, where we, where we are in the, the narrative of Abraham, the Lord had just promised that Sarah would have a son within the year, and there has to be no doubt that this is Abraham's son and not someone else's. And so the, the giving and receiving of this gift is proof of that. And with all of that settled, verse 17, Abraham prayed to God, and Abimelech and his wife and his female slaves are healed so that they could have children. Um, it wasn't mentioned before, but now we see that apparently when Abimelech took Sarah away from Abraham, something happened that they were not able to conceive. They were not able to have children. And by the prayer of Abraham, they're healed. This is God um, fulfilling his promises. His promise is not shaken by their sin. They haven't derailed God's agenda. First of all, the Lord is blessing Abraham as he said he would. Now Abraham, again, just like as he came out of Egypt with, with wealth and riches, he's coming here again. He's being enriched and blessed. But more than that, this picture of Abraham praying for Abimelech is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. It's, this is God's plan working its way out. Back in verse 7, the Lord told Abimelech, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. This is the first time the word prophet is used in the Bible. That's significant. We've got to perk up, pay attention. Um, we often hear prophet and we think about telling the future. That's not what prophet means. That's not what that's about. Sometimes that's what happens. Prophet means he's speaking on behalf of God. He is God's representative as he speaks and sometimes God sees fit to speak about future things but more often than not uh, it's God's warning or God's judgment or God's law Abraham was a prophet Abimelech had sinned and even though he didn't fully understand what he was doing and there was some level of innocence in it he had taken another man's wife and because of his sin, he deserved death. And the only way that he could avoid that deserved death is if he would go to God's appointed prophet and ask forgiveness. God is once again laying out, this is how my rescue plan is going to work. This is what it's going to look like. We've all sinned. We've all rebelled against God. We all deserve death for our sin. The Lord has, in a sense, said to each of us, you're a dead man. You thought about that? You're a dead man. The wages of sin is death. If you keep going down this road, it will end in hell. There's only one escape. 
There's only one way to live, and, and that is to go to God's appointed man, God's prophet, and be prayed for, receive forgiveness. As this story of the Bible plays out from Abraham, we see that it climaxes in Jesus. Jesus is God's ultimate prophet. He's the one. Abraham was this picture of what a prophet would do, what a true prophet would do. Jesus is it. He's the only true and full representation of God to us. He is God's ultimate ambassador to us. He is the Word of God in flesh. We don't have prophets anymore who speak God's Word to us. Jesus did that. And the word of of Jesus for us, once and for all, written down in the New Testament. That's the ultimate prophecy. We have God's word. Hebrews opens saying, in in days of old, uh, God spoke in many ways, many times through the prophets. Today, he has spoken uh, to us by his son. Jesus is God's ultimate prophet. And those who come to him in repentance and faith. He'll be forgiven. He'll be forgiven. This is God again laying out this plan of salvation. He's calling out to sinners, saying anyone who comes to Jesus in repentance will be forgiven. Come and have the death sentence lifted. Come to him that you may have life. Notice there's something else going on here as well. God has told Sarah that this promise, this descendant that was promised as far back as as Genesis 3.15, who would come and rescue, he's going to come through your line, that she would have a son. And that was the the hope of God's coming rescuer, but they've been waiting for, for 90 years. She's been barren. Her womb has been closed. And, and here, at the sin and forgiveness of Abimelech, the Lord's just opening and closing wounds like he's turning off and on the lights. It's no sweat. It's no trouble. Without effort, God has closed their wounds and now he's opened their wounds. What do you think he's saying to Abraham and Sarah? You've been barren. You've been waiting for me to open your womb for so many years and look, I can do it. God is saying, I am able to do what I promised. I'm able to do what I promised. You've been waiting for my promise and I am able to fulfill it. And even your sin has not cut off my plan. I will be faithful to work out my salvation even if you are not faithful. Even if you sin and doubt and falter along the way, I will still be faithful. I will still do what I promised. Our salvation does not depend on our faithfulness, but on his. That's a really good thing. It depends on his faithfulness. The very next chapter, the Lord is going to open Sarah's womb, and Sarah uh, will finally give birth to the long-awaited promised child, the first in this line that will eventually lead to Jesus. God's saving work cannot be stopped. That was true of his plan to bring about the coming Messiah, and that's true of his plan to rescue all who are his. Even though you will continue to sin, 
and stumble and fall, even though you will not walk perfectly before the Lord. Even though like Abraham and Sarah, you may do things that that appear to put the promise of God in jeopardy, even though you are unfaithful, he will be faithful still. If you're a child of God, if you've been given life in him, if you've trusted in him for salvation and come to him in repentance and faith, he'll finish what he started. Our sin does not change God's promise. Our sin does not change God's promise. We not only have the the Lord's protection, but we have this, this lasting promise. Have you trusted in him? Have you come to Jesus in repentance and faith? Then you're his child. You've been made holy by grace. You've been given this new life. And though you will continue like Abraham to struggle and fight with sin, and maybe you're looking at something in particular, it's that same spot that you continue to fall. Put it to death. Take it seriously. Don't make excuses for it. Continue to to strive and fight for obedience. But also know with confidence that we're secure in him. That his his protection uh, will not fail. His promise will not fail. That we're covered by his protection. We can have absolute confidence in his lasting promise. Would you pray with me? Father, God, I thank you that you know our hearts, that you know our weakness and our sin, that you knew our weakness and sin when you sent Christ to die for our sins. When you chose us and called us, you knew that we were a broken people. And all the more to your glory, that even when we are faithless, you are faithful. God, I pray for those who are In that place, they've been making excuses. They've been falling into sin. They've begun to take it lightly. God, that you would give them a renewed passion for holiness. That you would help them to see the lies that they've been telling their own hearts. Lord, all of us do. Open our eyes to our own justification of sin. That we might grow in holiness. But Lord, I pray too that we would do it in hope and in confidence of your goodness and your promise and your grace towards us, your protection over us, that even our faults and failures, even our, even our sin and rebellion um, does not nullify your grace, does not undo the cross, that we can hope in you and trust in you and have that blessed assurance that you offer. How we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.